Good afternoon, everyone. I always appreciate uh, everyone being here after uh, an exhausting Saturday. But uh, Carol Edmondson was explaining to me that actually dancing is therapy. And uh, she's got more energy than she did before the weekend began. So uh, we just pray you stay plugged into that. but I do want to thank just again, um, it's just a, a great job by Dave Brewster and Roy Arthurs, amen. And Roger Spence was, um, he was Roger Spence last night, there, there's no doubt about that. Uh, he was born to be an MC, I think. But it's really great. I'm just uh, thankful to be here myself. Thank you for the prayers. Um, Tammy and I had an interesting week. Just a week ago, we traveled to two countries who most recently in history lost a piece of their country to Russia. So we were in uh, Ukraine, which just lost the whole Crimean Peninsula uh, about in the last two weeks or so. And then we were in Georgia, which is in the Caucasus Mountain area, and they've lost two pieces to Russia uh, in the last maybe seven or eight years as well. So uh, we, you know, the funniest thing is the only language we speak to communicate with these people is Russian. So uh, that's kind of an interesting dynamic when you think about it, that we're speaking the language of the country that sort of dominated them uh, in certain periods of their history. But anyway, um, we made it through all those borders and immigrations in, you know, five-minute checks. Uh, and then we're welcomed back to the UK and spent seven hours in detention um, because some papers had been lost. And, um, you know, they were quite perplexed because they had a, a copy of a paper saying that we hadn't been reemployed after, chain, after uh, the Midlands Churches of Christ joined the International Church of Christ mission here in the UK, which had all been done and we had the papers to show it. And so they're kind of looking at it like, well, where did you get that paper? That shows that you're okay, you know. So anyways, um, we, we've never got an apology, but we did get the go-ahead about two days later. Um, <clears throat> uh, Mr. Fleming, please just proceed as normal and we will send back your documents and, you know. Um, I kept waiting for that, you know, we're sorry, but anyway. Um, Tammy and I, you know, had an hour playing Yahtzee together, caught up on all the things we were thinking, snoozed a little. Um, we were sat in this little room where they had that little... The the, the the tables were screwed to the ground. The, uh, the the stool is screwed to the ground, and there's a little little thing right in front of you, a little U bolt put in front on the table where you put your handcuffs. Uh, but we didn't have any handcuffs. So, uh, anyways, hadn't had that kind of excitement since the Soviet Union in the 90s. So, uh, anyway. <laughs> But here we are. It's great to be home, and thanks for prayers, and uh, God moved quickly, and uh, everything's good. Uh, Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 7. It's been kind of interesting. Um, I I, I have sort of a practice like to choose books of the Bible and just start to teach through. And the, the Gospel of John is an amazing Gospel. It's got so many rich metaphors and messages about who Jesus is. And it's kind of famous as being the book where Jesus said, I am the living water, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd. And you know, these these very catchy sayings. But what's kind of interesting about how the Gospel of John is written, 
that you have a whole chapter that in the middle of it says, for example, John 7, I, I have streams of living water will flow from you. He doesn't actually, in this case, say I'm living water, but he says, I'm the one that's going to give you living water. It's a pretty exciting concept. But throughout the whole chapter, for the most part, people are arguing with him. You're just sort of reading this story about people not really believing him. And it was kind of funny because I'm, I'm sort of getting a pattern here because that happened in John chapter 5. We spent more than half of John chapter 6 sort of in that same atmosphere. And I was looking at John 7 and then John 8 and then John 9, John 10. And actually through all of those chapters... There's more talk about people not believing in Him, not accepting who He was, than there is about people just saying, isn't it great who Jesus is? And I was thinking, why? Like, why is it written this way? I mean, I'd like to just, you know, preach this message today, because I like to kind of follow the text. I'd love to give you the 17 reasons that living water is going to flow out of you, just by following this text in John 7. But instead what we end up hearing is all these people kind of going, why do you say that? Who do you think you are? They're sort of just calling Jesus to account for who He is. The first four chapters of John are really full of testimony. We have John the Apostle himself who was an eyewitness. And then we have John the Baptist who kind of came into the public eye before Jesus. And both of these men are really saying amazing things about Jesus and about who He would be. And we see Jesus meet with His disciples for the first time. And they believe in Him. And then He meets the Samaritan woman. He meets Nicodemus. He meets you know these different individuals and has these really cool interactions with them. And in John 5... He heals this guy who'd been lame for 38 years and because he did it on a Sabbath, now he's in trouble. And and what we have from John 5 to John 10 is Jesus occasionally getting out a, a sentence or two of something really profound. Something worth just thinking on and meditating on. But all around it is the grief that he was getting for making the claim to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God, to in fact be speaking for God. And I'm thinking to myself, why did John write his gospel this way? If, you know, if, if, why doesn't he just tell us the good bits? Why doesn't he just make it full of these nice little sayings that we can kind of you know, reflect on and just be very encouraged by? But see, what, what began to occur to me as I've been reading through John... We know, and and most scholars agree, that this was the gospel written last. In other words, the other ones had already been written. But what John was dealing with was a very interesting problem. If Jesus is so true, if He in fact fulfilled the Scriptures so clearly, if in fact you just have to believe in Him, then why did so few actually decide to follow Him? And you can imagine what was going on. As the gospel spread out throughout the Roman Empire and even beyond, the the Jewish religion had already gone out. And so they, they knew, many people knew about the Jewish religion because it was so unusual believing in a single creator God who was invisible for people of the first century was kind of crazy. You should be worshiping an idol. They, 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 some, one of the... One of the emperors who actually got into the temple 
Uh, I think it was a Persian emperor. I wish I could remember the history exactly. But when he got into the temple and found out there was no idol inside, he said the Jews are atheists. They have an empty temple in Jerusalem. Of course, what they believed is you can't put God in a temple. And the temple was for us, not for God, so to speak. But what's interesting is, think about this message. John maybe was written 40 years after Jesus had actually you know, lived and died. Maybe even a little longer, maybe a little less, but somewhere around there. So people had heard about this Jesus guy. And they knew that it was in Judea. They knew he was a Jew. And they were probably familiar with the Jewish religion a little because Jewish synagogues were everywhere in the first century world. They'd really spread out over the world. But for some reason, the Jews were mad at this Jesus guy. And so you can can imagine, the Jewish scriptures were fulfilled, but the average Greek person's kind of thinking, but if that's true, why are so many people against him? See, they were learning about Christianity in a conflicted moment, in a setting where there was already people going, that's not true. And so what John's doing in his gospel, I believe, he's actually showing us that not everyone's going to believe. And in fact, what he's showing is some people are really not going to believe. I mean, they're going to aggressively not believe. And I think even the more we try to be like Jesus, the more we need to expect a little, we're just going to be so wonderful every day. Now, it'll be wonderful with Jesus, okay? It's going to be wonderful in our relationship with Him. But how will the world really respond to the message that the Creator of the universe sent His Son in the flesh to die as a sacrifice for our sins, and there's no other way to be forgiven. How popular really is that message? It's a challenging, challenging message. You know, just to review a little, in John 5, um, we see some reasons why people didn't believe. Jesus broke... And he went against man-made religious traditions. So John 5.16. So because Jesus was doing these things, on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. You go a little further in chapter 5. Jesus challenged the way people interpreted the Scriptures. And he said this, John 5.46-47. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me, but since you do not believe what he wrote... How are you going to believe what I say? That's pretty challenging. Jesus came to these people who really, they were claiming to be followers of Moses and He said, you don't even believe what Moses said. Because I'm explaining it to you and you won't accept it. Wow. And then, just the call of discipleship, Jesus began to teach, I'm the bread of life. You've got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. I'm sure a few people thought, you know, they just thought the weird way. Some kind of ritualistic cannibalism or something. But most people actually understood what he was saying. You've got to be like me. You've got to follow me. I've got to become you. You've got to become me. There's got to be this incredibly deep connection. And what happens in John chapter 6, verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Then verse 66, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. 
So why is John in his Gospel reporting all this? I think the answer is pretty clear. That, that Christianity wasn't just accepted by everyone. And it's kind of funny, because it's one of those things, in a way, you sort of believe it or you don't. Like when you look at the miracles, who, who here is affirmed in their faith by reading about miracles in the Bible? Just put up your hand. Okay, you know, what's interesting is we've got a little bit of a unique group here. There's a little bit of a filter. I don't know how you got here today. Some of you come here regularly. That's awesome. Some maybe got invited by a friend. Uh, but, you know, the truth is, not everybody... How many people in Birmingham have been to a church service today? And the number's not big. Let me just tell you, uh, if there's a game at Aston Villa, more people would have been there. There wasn't a game, was there? there? Was? Oh. And see, Keith is here. It just shows his faith, okay? But see, the point is, I, as, as sad as it is to think, there's more people filling that stadium than there is filling all the church buildings in the whole of the city. Why? It's because what they believe will make them happy. It's because what they believe is important. And you know, I don't have any problem against football. I'm just saying that we live in a world not so unlike the first century in this way. And the call to be Christians isn't any more popular today than it was back then. But back then, there were traditional ways of following God. And the challenge for us today as well is that we just don't fall into that same thing ourselves. Just follow God out of a tradition rather than really seek a personal connection with Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to get to here, streams of living water. Let's pick this up in John chapter 7. and We'll read verses 1 to 5. It says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposefully staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take His life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. Now, at first that doesn't sound too bad, but look at verse 4. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Well, that's a little discouraging. Even his own brothers didn't believe in him. And there's a point in the gospel where Jesus said, Who of you can accuse me of sin? And none of his brothers got up and said anything. But my, my brothers would be the first ones. You know, to get up and go, You? You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this. Um, Jesus was perfect and people didn't believe him. What does that mean for us? But you know, I was thinking about this too. There's one thing we have to share that Jesus actually couldn't in a way. How good it feels to be forgiven. How good it feels to have God's grace. We have a testimony that Jesus actually couldn't give. Jesus could talk about temptation and weakness. He could talk about what it meant to live in faith. But the one thing Jesus couldn't tell you is how good it felt to be forgiven by God for His sins. 
Because that wasn't part of His relationship. But that's something we can testify about. It seems hard to imagine, but even Jesus had some problems with His own family. And I know, you know, sometimes, I don't know, many people here, uh, Herminda didn't tell us the story of what it was like for her parents uh, of a Sikh background when she, kind of, when she finally announced, I want to be a Christian. But I can tell you, it, it, there was not a party. Uh, there was more of a parting. And, 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 and it really, she, she had to really hang in there and keep loving her family through many years of disapproval. But you know, interestingly, we think, well, yes, that's because, you know, they've been Sikhs for many generations. Many people in the room had similar things happen to them. When they finally were able to say to their parents or the people closest to them, I really want to be a Christian. I want to follow Jesus 100%. That's what people think. Have you lost your mind? Is that, you know, I mean, okay, do a little church. But don't talk about this 100% commitment stuff to God. And don't say, you know, it's totally not PC to say that there's any one singular truth. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't say it, the Bible did. The Bible says there's only one name under heaven given to men whereby we might be saved. And that's Jesus Christ. Acts 4 verse 12. There's no other name. There's no other plan. Everything else is just human strength saying let's go take the hill country. But there's only one Lord to follow. You know, I have a little theory too why Moses didn't get to lead the people into the promised land. He got to lead them out of Egypt. Joshua, who's actually the same name as Jesus in Hebrew, led them in. But I think it would have been too much for one person to be the full example of what Jesus' ministry was. I think it was better for Moses and Josh to kind of split it and get half of it each. The truth is, though, we have an amazing message. But Jesus' own family didn't even accept Him. You know, Mark 3, 20, 21... It talks about Jesus' family again. A crowd gathered, so He and His disciples were not even able to eat. When His family heard about this, they went to take charge of Him. And look what it says. For they said, He's out of His mind. Now, people were saying that about me before I became a Christian. But you know, there's been others that have looked at me as a Christian and go, you're out of your mind still. You know, this is like 2,000-year-old religion here. But the truth is, either it's the truth or it's not. Either you believe or you don't. Let's read a little further. Jesus said, verse 6, John 7, verse 6, Therefore Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, But it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast because the time for me, the right time, has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now, what an interesting statement. 
The world can't hate you, but it hates me. This is Jesus. The most compassionate person that ever lived. The most giving and sacrificial person ever to walk the planet. And what he's saying is the world hates me. But it can't. It hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. It's interesting. This this sentence that Jesus says here, it actually puts two other ideas together. Back in John 1 verse 9, it says that Jesus is the true light that gives light to every man. And He's coming into the world. That was John the Baptist preaching. But then Jesus said in John 3 verse 20, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's interesting. That wonderful verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I mean, it's an amazing verse. So that those that believe on Him won't perish, but have eternal life, is followed with, If you don't come into the light, you won't be saved. The Gospel is an invitation. The Gospel isn't some magic incantation that spoken correctly changes you without your will. Now let me just tell you, the Gospel isn't our idea. We don't take any credit for it. But if you don't obey it, it's of no value to you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. They, it says about the Israelites, the same story in, in that chapter, the same thing that Michael's talking about. They, they didn't mix the good news of the promised land with faith. And therefore, they did not receive what God promised. Of course, Jesus would later say to His disciples, I just want to encourage you. Do you have some disciples here today? Okay, listen to this. John 15, 18-20. And these, most of these other scriptures are in your notes. If you want to follow on, just stay in John 7. But John 15, 18-20, it says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. Now a servant, now no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. You know, it's interesting. Do you ever sort of feel like if I do this Christian life thing right, everybody should like me? But, I mean, that's what my human intuition tells me. If I follow Jesus the right way, everyone will love me. Jesus says, if you follow me, some people are going to hate you. If you really follow me. Because they hated Him. And why did He hate them? Why was He hated? What did he say? He said this, It hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. See, a disciple testifies that the world is evil. That is the testimony of a disciple. And if we testify the same as Jesus, the world will treat us the same way. Now the great news is, there are people out there that they know the world is evil. It's caused a question in their minds. What do I do? I loved what Harminda was saying. I knew there was something missing. I began to seek for truth, and then she understood eventually I was seeking for God.
that though it actually began with just seeking for truth. She knew there was something there. Well, you know, let's read a little further, verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, Where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He's a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. You know, it's interesting, in this first little review, sort of, what are people saying about Jesus? What's the buzz about Jesus? Some people were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, He's a deceiver. It's interesting, they weren't really identifying who is he, what's his purpose, what's he trying to do. They were just evaluating him as a person. Is he sincere and honest, or is he a deceiver? Can you imagine some people thought Jesus was a liar? That's how strongly they disagreed with what he had to say. Well, we've already studied a middle section here, uh, verses, um, let's see here. We read already verses uh, 14 to 24 in another lesson because it's so parallel to that. But what Jesus was saying, and He repeats it here again, He just simply says, My teaching's not my own. I'm I'm speaking from God. But He's also trying to get them to understand. They don't understand the law. God didn't give the law so that we could perfect ourselves. The law wasn't simply given to show us what right and wrong was. The law was given to show us we need God's grace. That was the purpose of the law. It wasn't a challenge to you to be perfect. It was a challenge to you to be humble and accept your need for God. So read a little further. Look, look at verse 25 to 35 in John 7. It says, At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here of my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now the further questioning of the people was, really showed the difference between who was willing to believe and who wasn't willing. Isn't that the way life works? 
When you really want something, you look for reasons to believe, right? When you don't want something, you look for reasons not to believe. Do you ever make up your mind about somebody thinking, oh, that's not a good person? If you make up your mind that way, do you, do you keep looking for good things in that person? No, you, you've already made up your mind. There's, there's nothing they can do. You know, same thing can happen in the positive way. They're such a good person. They just make me smile. Nothing they do is wrong. You know, it's interesting. Our attitude affects how we respond to people. It affected how people responded to Jesus. And some people looked at the miracles we'll see later and they'll say, he's doing that with satanic power. Of course, it made no sense and he, he, he talked about that. It doesn't make any sense what you're saying. But because they didn't want to believe what he was saying, and he was saying it so loudly and so strongly that they had to answer equally loud and strong. What he's saying isn't true and what he's doing isn't right. And so it's interesting People didn't know, they, they knew his origin in, in Galilee, and they saw the miracles, but they didn't bother doing the homework. All they had to do was ask someone who knew Jesus, and they'd find, find out he'd been born in Bethlehem. I mean, we know that. Who didn't know Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Okay, you know, we know that. I mean, everyone that was in his hometown knew that about him. That, you know, if, you, if they did their homework, they would have known. But the truth is, they didn't want to know. And I think that's a good question for us. Do we want to grow in our faith and conviction today? Are we kind of happy where it's at? Or even are we looking for reasons to turn away? We've got to ask ourselves some questions. Because there's testimony all around us. And we'll begin to look for things that we want to hear. You know, so far in this chapter, there's a recurring theme. And that's just about how the wrong expectations, family, the world, the Jewish leaders, the crowd, prevented people from seeing the truth about Jesus. You know, our expectations, if they're wrong, can keep us from seeing the truth. Well, now let's get to the, like, I would say the little sweet spot in the, in the lesson today. Let's look over in verse 37. John seven thirty-seven. It says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were later to receive, up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay, Jesus being glorified is after His death and resurrection, being taken back up into heaven and receiving back from God the glory He'd had at the creation of the world. So it's, pre it's pretty amazing what He's talking about, but He's saying here, if anyone's thirsty... You know, the Feast of Tabernacles was sort of the last uh, long feast in the Jewish calendar. There'd be one more feast to come, Yom Kippur. But there's this, this is the last sort of big week-long feast that the Jews celebrated in their calendar. And it was around the harvest time. 
And it was more of a harvest feast in the beginning, but it eventually became a feast of tabernacles, which means tents. And I just know how many are you going to love this. The Jews would live in tents for a week. That would really fire up some. Some are really grateful right now that you're not practicing Judaism. And what it even meant was you'd go up on the roof of your house and put up a tent. See, I didn't even have to mention Derek Edmondson, but people are slapping him on the back. Okay. You know, the, the truth is, it was a feast of tabernacles because they were remembering the wilderness wandering when they didn't have a home. It was looking forward to God. And it, because it had this harvest element in it as well, because of the time of the year, uh, actually this tradition uh, grew up in the, before Jesus' generation, maybe a couple hundred years before. But they, they got this, this tradition of getting a pitcher of water and going to the pool of, pool of Siloam and getting filling up the pitcher and then ceremonially, kind of almost like an Olympic torch, running it up to the altar and pouring it out. And people would actually line the streets and clap and it would be very exciting. And so the, the feast lasted a week, which, which typically in Jewish reckoning meant eight days because they'd add a day on. It'd go from one, Sunday or Saturday, one Saturday to the next Saturday, including both Saturdays. So it was an eight-day festival. And the first six days, they ran one pitcher up. And everybody was cheering, palm leaves, all these kind of things. But on the, and they'd be saying Hosanna, and they'd be reading from the Hallel, uh, Psalm 118. It was a very festive time, very similar to the Passover in how some, some of the celebration was done. But on the seventh day, seven pitchers, they took seven, did seven runs. And then on the eighth day, there was none. It was kind of over. And so it says on the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up. But nobody knows. So was that really the seventh day or the eighth day? Which day was that one? But either way, it's kind of interesting. Either seven guys had just run by. You know, they'd just done that Olympic run seven times. And then Jesus stood up and said, I can give you living water. Or it was the eighth day, when in fact there was none, and Jesus maybe stood in the very same place the runners were going by, And he said, I can give you living water. And so there was a context to this statement. And this isn't the first time Jesus said something like this. Uh, he, He said literally, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. Back in John 4, Jesus was thirsty. He asked a woman for some water. We don't know if he ever got it. He asked, you know, they got into this conversation. But he said to her, if you only knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water. And this is what Jesus said, John 4.13, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up into eternal life. You know, one of the most amazing miracles of being a Christian is that... Jesus, on the day of Pentecost, poured out Himself on the world through the Holy Spirit. He is now everywhere. He is with us everywhere. Just as God is, the Father's everywhere, Jesus is everywhere. But then he, the, the message was, repent and be baptized, 
And the Holy Spirit can come into you in a unique way, making us God's children. And so the Holy Spirit is placed in us. Now for those of you that like flashy things, this is not that flashy. Many of you have seen baptisms. And when someone is baptized, they're simply immersed in water. And the only thing you actually see is they got wet. Now, almost invariably, you'll see a sort of serious, slightly anxious person going in the water and a very happy person coming out. You know, there, there is some visible signs. But there's no, you know, tongues of fire and there's no lightning bolts and there's no thunder. It's none of this kind of stuff is happening. It's an action of faith where we believe that God puts His Spirit in us. And God does it. It's a miracle. You know, we studied about this when we talked about John 3, where it talked about being born again. Because that's what being born again is. Actually, Jesus coming into us. And it says in Zechariah uh, chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Zechariah 12. And then just a few verses later, chapter 13, 1, it says, on, a, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. In other words, the pouring out of God's Spirit, of Jesus Christ on the world, cleanses us. But then he goes on to say in Zechariah 14.8, On that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the east, See, half to the western sea in summer and winter. In other words, in all directions, in all seasons, living water is going to go out. But see, that living water was being carried in vessels. When Jesus was at the festival, somebody was running with a vestibule to pour out the water. Guess what? Guess who the vessels are today? We are. And where are we pouring that out? The world needs what God has put in us. That Spirit that God has given us needs to be poured out. It's a living fountain. Have you ever felt like your patience was going to end? A couple parents immediately put up their hands, okay? What Jesus is saying is, it doesn't have to. Connect to me and you'll find more patience. Amen? How about our ability to forgive? This is his favorite. I mean, if we've got grace in us, what better thing to do with it than spread it around? Is there enough grace in this world? I was wrestling a little bit with my grace towards the border agency this week. And you know, I was feeling some things. Because when you get treated unjustly, little things start to stand up inside of you. But the truth is, you just got to make peace. I wish I was above this, but just playing a board game with Justin and Tammy and losing terribly the other night. I was kind of feeling like, but... And then I went to bed kind of thinking, but two of my favorite people in the world won. That was great. You know, the truth is... The truth is, you know... The world needs what we've been given. The world needs the Spirit of Jesus poured out generously on it. No matter what comes back, it needs to be poured out through us. 
And Jesus said, I will make each one of you a wellspring of living water. Living water from God to change the world around us. You know, look over in Isaiah 32. I just have to read this one. I didn't have space in the notes to put the whole quote. But look in Isaiah 32 verse 14. And here it's a prophecy about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that would happen when Jesus was glorified. But it says here, The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted, citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever, the delight of donkeys a pasture for flocks. Now what he's actually talking about is the strength of the Jewish religion. It's going to become empty. It's not going to provide what people think it provides. But verse 15, Till the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. Justice will dwell in the desert, and righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. Does that sound encouraging? See, through Jesus Christ, God's pouring out on us a spirit of peace, of righteousness. It's nothing we could ever get for ourselves. It is a gift from God. But it's meant to be a spring. It's not meant to be... It's it's, it's in me, and I'm just holding it all in. It was supposed to be a spring. It was supposed to flow. That is Jesus' intention. You know, Jesus didn't come to save us, so like our driver's license, we could just slap it in our back pocket and then go do whatever we want to with a few extra privileges. That's not what He did. He saved us so we could become like Him. He saved us so we could be transformed. Now, the final transformation is going to be the most amazing one. And if you live long enough, the idea of looking forward to that new body just gets better and better. You know, when you're 20, the new body thing doesn't really... Wow, you know, new body. But you know, when you start getting a little white and you know, start getting a little, you know, a little older, you start realizing, hey, this new body thing, that's a great idea. I'm into that. But the Spirit in us, this is Jesus' plan. And that the message would go out in us. He poured out the Spirit on the world. But it only comes into us through repentance and baptism. But it didn't come into us to stay just in us. It was meant to be flowing out of us. Flowing out into the lives of everyone around us. That's the thing you see about Jesus. Did He just hold His spring in? Didn't Jesus just let it pour out over as many people as possible? And that's what He's asked us to do. In Isaiah 58.11 it says, The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. You know, that's probably the most direct quote that Jesus was referring to when He says in John 7, 
This is what the Scripture said. But it's all about the Spirit changing us, working, coming through us. Let's just go back to John 7 and finish. Sadly, coming back to the reality in John 7, despite all of these promises and these beautiful images, there's still people who won't believe. Now some do, some don't. Look what happens in verse 40. On hearing His words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Doesn't the Scripture say the Christ will come from David's family? And from Bethlehem? The town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize Him, but no one laid a hand on Him. Now back at the end of the last chapter, somebody wanted to make Him king. Now they just want to seize Him. It's not going so well. Look at verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one has ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No! Of course, the answer was actually yes. Some had. But no! But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it! You'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, they were looking into the Scripture, but they weren't looking into Jesus. And they couldn't see that Jesus was the answer. How many questions did they really need to ask to find out where Jesus was born? Who was His family? I mean, the people were around. They could have done this. But they didn't want the truth. Because they were happy with what they believed already. You know, I think the simple challenge for us today is simply to ask, am I completely convinced about who Jesus is? Do I really believe what He's saying here? That He can cause streams of living water to flow through me. It would have been great to hear Jesus. But even hearing Jesus and seeing the miracles still wouldn't take away your free will to make a decision about who Jesus is. No miracle was so great. People, People didn't lose their free will in the presence of Jesus. They had to make a decision of faith. And though they could see the miracles, it was the cost of following Him that often caused them to turn away. Give up tradition. Give up their own expectations of this life. Rather than simply accept the truth of what Jesus said. Let's continue just to to look at the evidence of Scripture. Let's read about the story of Jesus. Let's think about how amazing was His teaching and His miracles and His life and the story of a God that would give up part of Himself for us as a sacrifice. What an amazing Gospel. And then completely just surrender to Him and ask Him simply, what would you like me to do? Thank you for what you have done. Amen.
Uh, thank you, Andy, for that. Uh, please, let's stand. We'll have one final song before we close the service uh, today.